0: Welcome to the Voice of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sibolsky. I'm a behavioral scientist that started a company called Ionia. We focus on AI, voice first, and all things digital health in the healthcare space. In Twitter spaces, I am your host, Matt Sibolsky. Welcome to the Digital Healthcare Roundtable. I am joined today by two very impressive women uh, to talk about innovation in behavioral health. Um, I have with me um, Dr. Acacia Parks, the chief science officer for Happify Health, uh, cutting-edge digital methods for managing and treating depression, anxiety, and chronic health conditions, Um, health plans, consumers, businesses. Her expertise is in scientific strategy for digital therapeutics and wellness products for mental health and chronic condition. As someone who's living with bipolar disorder, she is passionate about leading by example modeling the same self-care that she expects her team members to practice themselves. In addition, Salome Tibibu is a behavioral health strategist passionate about frontier tech and solutions transforming mental health, equity, and access. She works with telehealth and chronic disease companies, mental health startups, pharma, health plans and systems, and private equity funds as a behavioral health technology subject matter expert. She is the founder and host of Going Digital, Behavioral Health Tech, the largest virtual behavioral health tech conference there is. She is also the founding, Salome, you're on. Give me a little (laughs) bit more detail.
1: (laughs) Thanks so much, Matt. And um, yes, also founding fund director of the Upswing Fund for Adolescent Mental Health, a philanthropic fund focused on supporting organizations who deliver mental health services to adolescents of color and LGBTQ teens. Um, I'm just so excited to be here. Thanks so much.
0: It's wonderful having you both on the call. Acacia, say hello. Thanks for having me. I'm here. (laughs) Yeah, welcome. Um, We're going to get started. We have sort of a short timeline and we have a lot to talk about. Uh, I was fortunate to be connected to both of these women uh, in regards to behavioral health. And we sort of talked about what we wanted to share, their thesis, who they are and what they're doing. So kind of opening it up to both of you um, let's start off with talking about issues regarding access to behavioral health. Uh, and in your opinion, how can the behavioral health access issues we're currently facing, things like clinician shortage, increased demand, et cetera, best be addressed? So, I mean, I think this is probably
2: like Solomon. I, I uh, both have tons to say about this. But, you know, for me, I got into working in this field because, you know, I'm not going to date myself, but when I was an undergraduate, I read uh, journal articles all about how two thirds of people who need treatment for a mental health condition don't ever get any kind of care. And uh, these sort of stark numbers of, you know, maybe between 20% and 25% of the population having some kind of a mental health issue. And that utter disconnect and the fact that that was, I'm just going to say it like 15 or 20 years ago. That was like 20 years ago now. Like, how are we still having this problem? So <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about it. And some of the ways the technology are trying to tackle it Um, to answer the question, you know, I think it's um, it's essential that we understand. And that uh, everybody agrees that there is indeed a shortage of people who can provide the kind of care that in a perfect world, everybody would have access to. And so this is not about replacing uh, care providers at all. It's about the fact that we need more because there's no way to train enough humans to, uh, to service the need in uh, for, for mental health care uh, in, in the world.
1: Uh, As Dr. Parks alluded to there's never going to be enough providers to meet the demand anytime soon. And so, you know, similarly, I came into this field with my own lived experience uh, as a teenager with anxiety and OCD. Um, I struggled quite a bit and there weren't really any tools or resources online to help me at the time. And so in 2006, I started a blog called Anxiety in Teens. And um, since then, it's just amazing how much advancement we've made in innovation and technology. But what I'm most interested in is how are we actually leveraging that technology to be able to make the most of what providers we do have and ensuring the right level of care is going to um, the right individuals.
2: Totally agree. And, you know, I, th- I think that's uh, ultimately where this whole field is headed. And I think maybe like digital health had to spend 10 years um, zigzagging a little bit to realize it. But, you know, Sol- what Salome is saying, um, I-, I completely agree that it's 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 about helping uh, helping people find something that they can engage with so that once they've done that, that tool can maybe be the jump-off point that gets them connected to the right thing. And the right thing might be an automated digital thing. It might be uh, a meeting with a doctor. It might be some hybrid of those things, right? With um, And, you know, Salome, I first met Salome because um, she was doing this cutting-edge work with digital tools that people can use between therapy sessions, right? So the, this hybrid approach is also a very real possibility. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, that, how fun. Such a small world and so exciting to reconnect after all these years. Hopefully, I've learned a little bit more about healthcare since those college days.
2: <laughs> yes, definitely a small world. Um, yeah, but I, I think, you know, it's a, there's a whole uh, variety of different ways people can engage with healthcare, and we're learning that more and more during COVID, um, where, you know, maybe some of the traditional methods uh, aren't available and people are having to find new ways to get healthcare, telemedicine, and all of these kinds of things, that it becomes more a mess of if a person doesn't come to that doctor as the first step, um, how do we sort them to the right thing?
0: well listen um, we're getting started here and this is going to be a bright conversation I'm gonna pivot real quick if I don't mind if you all don't mind there has been a bunch of news lately about teens and their health uh, what innovations in teen behavioral health hold the most potential in the year ahead uh,
1: yeah I, I can start on that one so for me um, I've had the great pleasure of Taking um, a close look at this space because in the last year, um, I, along with Panorama Global and Pivotal Ventures, which is Melinda Frenchgate's personal office and some other family offices have come together to launch the Upswing Fund for Adolescent Mental Health, which is a philanthropic fund focused on supporting organizations who are delivering culturally sensitive care to LGBTQ teens and adolescents of color. And so to date, We have funded um, almost 95 organizations nationwide. Um, Many of them are direct service providers, uh, traditional mental health clinics or community-based organizations. But we've also funded several system-enabling nonprofits that some of them are focused on designing and delivering digital technology to adolescents. In addition to that, I've had the great pleasure of being an advisor to Hope Lab, which just launched Hope Lab Ventures, investing in youth mental health startups, as well as the Talocity Fund, uh, also focused on youth mental health startups. So it's, um, I'll just say, I, I really haven't heard employers and insurers ask about youth mental health interventions like they have in these last 18 months. The demand for services for youth, um, for children and adolescents and their mental health has just exploded. And uh, unfortunately, I think COVID was a, a huge catalyst for that but um, excited to see all the innovation happening in this Yeah, space. I can definitely
2: uh, echo that as well. Uh, you know, we uh, at, at Happify had uh, developed a team product primarily because of requests from employers that we work with to have something that the teens of their employees could use. And uh, it's been interesting because um, this product, like we we launched a, a research trial um, probably two months ago now. And it's uh, it's been really interesting to see because I, if you had asked me at least two years ago, if you had asked me what it was going to be like to run a clinical trial on teens, I would have told you engagement's going to be a big issue, right? Getting their attention, finding them in the first place. And I have to say in this clinical trial, like these are some of the most adherent uh, participants that we've had in terms of the level of interest and engagement. Um, it hasn't been hard to find them. And I think that as Salome noted, uh, that's partially a sign of the times, right? That uh, there's there's kind of a growing interest in uh, in receiving mental health support that maybe wasn't there before so um, it's been really interesting to see that we could you know engage teens around their well-being um, and their stress um, and have some success with that given that there are so many things competing for teens attention
0: and why don't we pivot there what is competing for their attention in regards to social media and what sort of ethical um, conundrums are you sort of grappling with with your your work
2: I mean, I think you know it's not even specific to teens, but like one of the most common questions that I get anytime I speak anywhere is, uh, "How do you know that the the social media and the social, you know, the engagement with technology that you are fostering is actually good for people, and that it's not kind of uh, going to the other side of the um, the bell curve into you know unhealthy social media use or unhealthy technology use?" And it's you know extra timely with this news about. Uh, you know, Facebook and and some of that internal data, finding um, that for teens that, at least with um, with Instagram, that um, not only was it not great for their mental health, but they liked it more the worse it was for their mental health, right? So, like, we have this, and I've published research about this kind of uh, phenomenon before, that people don't necessarily know what's healthy for them, and in a, a marketplace full of options, they're not necessarily picking the one that's best for them um, in terms of their mental health. They might be engaging in something um it, not deliberately, but engaging in something that could be making things worse. So it's um, not necessarily an answer so much as like, yes, that is a very timely question. It's very important. It's something we spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, you know, if people are gravitate, sometimes people gravitate towards things that aren't healthy and it's harder to get them to engage with things that are healthy. Um, Salome, I don't know if you have thoughts on that as well. I'd be interested. To hear. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Really good observations. Um, I guess the only thing I'd add to that is, um, it is, at least on the bright side, it does seem like several social media companies are trying to do some things that are, are helpful on that front. You know, Pinterest is launching their Pinterest havens on World Mental Health Day. Um, Snapchat has new lenses focused on how teens can um, support one another with their mental health. And so I, I hope that continues to be the case, but you know, Matt, to your original question, through Covid and with school shutdowns and um, teens not being able to interact with each other face to face, yeah, I'm I'm just anecdotally, I only think that um, time on social media probably increased. And you know, how do we make sure that there is enough balance there?
2: Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a huge deal, um, particularly with a kind of social media engagement where you sort of the natural thing that I think we can all relate to is that you see what other people have and you either feel better about yourself because you have more or you feel worse about yourself because you don't have as much. Um, and there's like really extensive uh, research about this in social psychology about social comparisons and how they affect us. and the the upshot is that no social comparison is good. Like looking at somebody else doesn't actually make you feel better if they have less. It definitely doesn't make you feel better if they have more. Social comparison in general are pretty bad for well-being. and uh, a lot of social media is built to, uh, that's the sort of the culture of you know being on facebook is to kind of uh, show your life at its best and it's not intended to make people feel bad but kind of just does inherently so uh, yeah how right. do we how do we provide content about ourselves without that comparison uh,
0: let me take this yeah. a little further what kind of adults do we create uh, with the environment that we have now with social media and basically just wheels off just no guide rails
1: well ones that aren't as used to making those connections face-to-face. And, you know, Dr. Parks is the clinician Stop here, calling so me Dr. Parks. We've known each other for like 15 <laughs> years. I <laughs> know. Oh, You'll always be Dr. No! But, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we just have to make sure that teens are developing those skills that, you know, that, that only come to be when you're face-to-face. And I think that's real after missing a couple years now, one at least, of school. You know, there's plenty of data showing how, especially underrepresented youth, uh, are there are gaps in learning. And now I'm sure gaps in social skills, too.
2: Yeah, one of my daughters actually graduated high school in the middle of the pandemic, and, like, so, you know, she was in school, and then, uh, you know, her school shut down, and if you can imagine what it's like to be in your senior year of high school, and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do next, and then partway through the year, everybody just stops going to school, basically classes didn't happen, and then she was done with high school. It's like that's a, that's an odd jumping point for uh, entering adulthood and figuring out what to do next. It's uh, there's a lot of uncertainty um, where I think, you know, it's already an uncertain period, but I think um, kids that are coming up right now are just experiencing such a different structure and less tethering to, to other kids. And, um, but also, you know, This is just my opinion, but like, you know, high school is a rough, can be a rough place. And there are things you learn about how to be an adult successfully by messing up in high school. And so I think a lot about kids missing out on that opportunity to have the social experiences that, that teach you how to be a functional human um, that, you know, where you maybe you do it wrong, but it's high school and it doesn't matter that, you know, to have to venture into adulthood without having that sandbox or missing a, a large chunk of that sandbox time, um, you know, we don't know how that will play
0: out, but it, it seems from a developmental standpoint, uh, rough. Right. Uh, you know, I've heard once that um, I forgot who say it, said it, but you know, there's a, 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 an innate sort of emotional skill set you're born with, and then there's a skill set you're taught, and the combination of those things is where we land into adulthood, and might sort of explain some of the support and guidance we might need um, to be healthy and have great well-being. Um, now, this is where Happify Health sort of steps in on the access question, and Acacia, early on, we were talking about Happify Health's AI uh, toolset, and that tech, and uh, combining human touch with it, Um, given that we do have needs for mental well-being across the country, the world, tell us about Happify Health's AI and how it's being applied um, to support and treat and offer therapeutics to someone remotely. Absolutely. So, I mean,
2: I think, you know, there are multiple layers where people are using AI in this space. Um, I think it's relatively common to see AI um, leverage towards the kinds of precision care topics Salome and I were talking about earlier, where you're, you're literally just trying to like learn as much as you can about somebody and then direct them to the right thing, given what you've learned. Um, certainly, our AI can do that. But uh, one thing that I think is really special about um uh, what uh, what we're working on is the ability for an AI to have some features of a human, um, so that it's like your um, the equivalent of you. I'm just. Making this up, but the equivalent of you like going to a doctor's office and spending some time talking to the nurse before you are, um, you know, seeing the doctor. And the nurse asks you most like all the kind of hard, heavy lifting questions, um, but does it in a way where they're sort of, you know, empathic and they're also chatting with you about your day and they, you know, they remember some things about you. So it is a bit more of a personalized human experience and in some ways even has some features of speaking to, you know, a human therapist, um, you know, where therapists are training the model so that it, it has that. Kind Of empathy. Um, We're doing research now to kind of understand how well we've achieved that. But that's the goal is, right, given that a person, not every person who wants to see a therapist can speak to a therapist, can we train AIs that are enough like a therapist for folks who um, maybe don't have so severe of a mental health need that they might get what they need from that? Um, It's pretty radical, right? But given that there aren't enough therapists out there, so it's not like we can just facilitate access. There aren't enough. Um, it, are there is there a subset of folks who may not need an in person therapist but may benefit from talking to an AI, uh, and that's something that we've been we've been working on for the last few years.
1: Yeah, I'll just say it was nice to have um, a little of this at my conference this last year the, through the Happify presentation. It was really exciting to learn about the work that you're doing. Um, and, you know, we had all sorts of vendors, but I was really struck by Happify's ability to help bridge that gap you know, as we've discussed, there really aren't going to be enough providers anytime soon. And Happify has really invested the resources to um, evolve your tech to make sure that folks who could use that in the meantime, you know, again, not a replacement for therapy, but going back to the right care at the right level at the right time. um, I think that's really a great example of making the the best use of the resources we do have.
0: Is there something, a moment, an anecdote that you find to be compelling.
2: I mean, back to that concept of precision care. I mean, I think that's where, um, you know, so when a, when a person, so one of the things that I find, just to step back for a second, is that the average person that comes into any of our uh, products is more distressed than the general population. And that makes sense because we seek help when we're in a moment of crisis or when we're feeling especially bad. It's not like, oh, I'm feeling great. Let me go look for something for next time I feel bad, right? So we get people at a critical moment in our automated solution where what they would really could really use is a personal touch. And uh, so I think it's important that when a person enters a digital solution, even if it may be totally asynchronous, maybe totally automated, that it gives a bit of a feel that the person's receiving care. And, you know, it could just be care in an empathic sense. Um, But once that happens... And we can learn a bit more about that person. Then we can direct them to the right place. We can make sure they're getting the right care at the right time. Um, and that's that's something aspirationally, I think, um, is really worth developing. Is sort of giving a person that initial kind of empathic reception where um, they're in a moment that's sensitive, where they need to know that things are going to be okay. Where we can maybe we can give them that at the same time that we're understanding things about them and kind of trying to take action on their behalf. There aren't enough social workers either, right? So like this kind kind of role, um, which might traditionally be handled by a social worker to help a person figure out, like, well, do they need a doctor? Do they need, you know, this type, of, um, this type of intervention, that we might be able to do that using AI. To me, that's the big thing, is that critical moment, that moment where a person's vulnerable. We can give them, you know, a, an impersonal tool, or we can give them something that feels personal and um, can, can give them some sense of connection and comfort as we try and give them the, the care that they need as well
0: whether it come from us or or a referral somewhere else. Uh, What role does digital health and behavioral remote health play in this sort of innovation of care when it comes to the mind-body connection?
1: I think especially in the last couple of years, again, a lot of early stage mental health startups are really starting to focus on how they're addressing holistic whole person care, Um, not just from a, a cost perspective, but just because that's um, when the two are connected, that's that's the way it should be. Payers are expecting it. Employers are expecting it. And and so I'm really pleased to see that movement from, from many startups as I just look at the broader landscape.
2: Yeah. And I would say to that as well that, um, you know, so we started off as a, a mental health company, just, you know, kind of stress and symptoms of depression and anxiety, these kinds of general, broad-based mental health. Symptoms, but one of the things we found over the years is that we have yet to encounter a physical health condition that is not affected by these variables, right? So, like, if you can improve, reduce stress, um, reduce symptoms of depression, reduce symptoms of anxiety in people with literally, I mean, I'm hard pressed to think of a health condition where people don't take better care of themselves if their mental health is better. They don't; they're more likely to follow their doctor's recommendations. Um, They're more likely; they're less likely. Likely to end up in a health crisis because they're taking better care of themselves. So like to give you an example with diabetes, right? So like there are all kinds of steps that need to be taken to care for a person if they have, say, type 2 diabetes. Um, and if they don't, they end up in the emergency room, right? And that's that's not good for anybody. Um, and mental health, uh, mental health plays a pivotal role in people's level of empowerment to care for themselves, um, as well as for their overall energy levels and um, their sort of uh, their confidence that they they can as well as their energy to do it so um, this is one place where we found you know if we reduce uh, mental health symptoms uh, in in, a, in any given health uh, condition we see that uh, there are improvements uh, in, in their quality of life of course which, which is worthwhile but sometimes also in the in the condition itself because they're caring for themselves better so these things are just in um, intertwined uh it's impossible to disentangle them. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I'll just add to that. Uh, Especially timing right now coming out of the pandemic. Most of us, (laughs) I mean, the trauma of these last couple of years, everything from COVID to social unrest, there is huge demand and needs for trauma-informed care. Like really this, this is the next epidemic. And so, um, more reason why more companies need that emphasis on strong mind body connection with the, with the lens on trauma.
2: Absolutely. I mean, this has been uh, such an amazing, amazingly, I I guess amazing is the wrong word, awe inspiring or, or even all of those things together to observe just the prevalence of everyday people experiencing symptoms of trauma, just, Walking around with it, not everyone, but almost everyone to some extent has experienced some kind of you know trauma around this pandemic. So could not could not agree more. It's becoming a more the norm um, that you know when you when I when I was in graduate school we learned about like oh well you know if you're interested in studying depression you should exclude people with trauma right because it's just they're different things and it's like the, you can't exclude trauma
0: anymore. It's part of things. It's part of it. Excellent. Um, Thank you both. This has been a bright conversation so far. And, you know, I always ask folks uh, at the end of our conversations, at the end of our talks, what's the final word?
1: Yeah, um, Keisha, I could go. Uh, I guess for me, you know, like I said, uh, I have been doing this work since I was an anxious teen myself. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a clinician. But early on, I saw the power of innovation and technology to be able to Expand access to mental health and substance use services to all. And so, for anyone listening, um, I really believe that behavioral health is the most underserved area that needs so many more resources in so many more ways. And we all can play our part, even if we're not clinicians or engineers or, or whomever. We all have an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of somebody in our families, our friends. Uh, our schools, our workplaces, or even ourselves. And so even just the fact that individuals are listening, being part of conversations like the ones we're having now, that is just a, at least one step in the right direction to allow us to remove stigma around mental health and substance use issue, issues and um, ultimately expand access to everyone. Yeah, I think I would just say that like healthcare
2: needs to meet people where they are, and that's not in a doctor's office, right? People aren't just hanging out in doctor's offices waiting to get care. There is a whole chain of events that happens between when a person needs help And when they can actually receive it, that leads to systematic barriers to access um, that leads to people being unable to get the care they need because we're, we're sort of sticking in this one size fits all mentality that like going to a doctor's office, that's the way to get care. But there are many ways to get care um, and there are many ways to meet people where they are. And it's, it's by some, you know, definitions that's on their phones and in social media and using their computers, right. It's with technology. um, That's, I think has to be a central part of this, uh, but also meeting them where they are in the sense that different people need different things. Um, so You know, I was amazed, um, again, in my early days to learn that there were programs going on in schools um, where kids got the right level of intervention depending on what they needed. So some kids didn't really need intervention or, like, maybe they were kind of at risk and so they got one kind of intervention and some people had an active problem and those kids got a different intervention. And some of those interventions are more costly. And instead of trying to funnel everybody into the most costly intervention, um, there was this uh, idea, though I don't know if it really got implemented, that people could be sorted to the thing that they needed. And we're seeing that so much in healthcare now, kind of uh, understanding what it is each person needs and trying to figure out how to get them there and not sending them to something that's overkill and not sending them to something that's not enough. And this concept of kind of uh, you know precision care, um, it's driven by data science, it's driven by AI and learning as much as we possibly can about people. Um, and people are collecting all kinds of data about themselves now on their phones, with wearables that you know can be leveraged um, so that people can get where they need to go in a way. Way that will work for their lives that they can access um it's it's important to really remember the can access piece because not everybody uh you know the access to healthcare is better now than it was, but um, there are still treatments that cost thousands of dollars out of pocket to get, and those are, uh, those are where people will be funneled when there might be earlier-stage digital treatments that could, uh, that could help them uh, without going that far. So, so important to figure out. Like, it's not one-size-fits-all. Um, it's not happening only in doctor's offices. Um, there are ways that, uh, that health can be addressed, physical and mental, um, using digital products, uh, to help them get where they need to go, help them get the, uh, the right treatment or um, or preventive intervention or wellness intervention for them um, rather than just assuming like let's get everybody to a doctor's office. That is not the way. Um, so eager to be eager to be a part, continue being a part of all of that happening. Um, that's very much kind of my my mission is to reduce the
0: overall level of distress in the world and I think this is how we're going to get there. And Acacia. Salome, we are eager to see you succeed and continue your journey. I want to thank you both for joining today on the Digital Healthcare Roundtable, affiliated with the voice of healthcare. I am your host, Matt Zabulski. Salome, Acacia, thanks for coming today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: us. All right. Until next time, we'll see you soon. Cheers, everybody.